0: The type of geo we're talking about is just basically actually stored sunlight. It's like the sun warms up the top layer of the earth and sort of it maintains a constant temperature year round. You don't need to be in Idaho. You don't need to be in a volcanically active region. You just need to be on the ground, which many houses are.
1: Hello, 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 this is episode number 10 of the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and today on the show we're speaking with a Stanford-educated ex-Google innovator about geothermal energy, a technology that can heat, cool, and maybe someday power your home. Geothermal technology is over 100 years old, but today only makes up 0.4% of the world's energy supply. You may be familiar with geothermal energy from Yosemite's famous geysers, or from dipping in a naturally heated hot spring on vacation. That type of geothermal energy can be leveraged on a large industrial scale to create electricity. But today on the show, we're talking about the type of geothermal energy that any homeowner can leverage to heat and cool their home. Home geothermal, or in technical speak, ground source heating and cooling, relies on the fact that the temperature of the earth just beneath our feet stays at a comfortable and consistent 55 degrees Fahrenheit. When combined with a heat pump, geothermal energy can completely replace the need to have a furnace to heat your home and an air conditioning unit to cool it. Today's guest is Kathy Hanoon. Kathy is the co-founder and president of Dandelion Energy, the largest home geothermal company in the United States. Before founding Dandelion, she was a rapid evaluator at Google X, Alphabet's innovation lab, where she focused on identifying business opportunities to harness technology for large-scale climate impact. She started Dandelion as an X project and then launched it into an independent startup company in May, 2017. Kathy graduated from Stanford with a BS in civil engineering and a master's in computer science before we start, I want to share one stat from the interview that caught my attention. More than 70% of energy usage in the home comes from heating, cooling, and water heating. Installing a Dandelion geothermal heating and cooling system can reduce a home's carbon emissions by as much as 80%. So let's get to it. I'd like to welcome Kathy Hanoon, co-founder and president of Dandelion Energy.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I thought we could start um, with your, I could just a short history of your resume. Uh, it's super impressive and intimidating to someone like me, uh, but as I understand it, you graduate Stanford with a degree in civil engineering, kind of a focus on the environment and water and energy, and then you joined the World Wildlife, the World Wildlife Fund as a fellow, but then quickly after transitioned transition to Google. And so I'm curious, like, what was your mindset coming out of school? Was it NGO? I'm going to save the world. And then you're like, actually, no, like capitalism is the way to go.
0: I mean, you pretty much summarized it. So, (laughs) but I can add a little bit of color. Um, Yeah. I, I majored in civil engineering because I really wanted to understand infrastructure, um, the systems that we use for water and energy specifically, because the infrastructure we put in place really dictates how we use resources. And I wanted to, my vision for myself was that I would work for a nonprofit or an NGO of some sort. And certainly this world wildlife fund opportunity was exactly that. So I got to work in Mexico um, for the world wildlife fund, doing some projects that had to do with water and sanitation And on the surface, it was exactly the type of thing I wanted to be doing in practice. It was, (laughs) it was, um, it was a, it was a difficult experience. I mean, also a really parts of it were amazing. Um, there were a few problems though. So one was I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker. I can kind of understand Spanish. I, I studied it in like middle school, but not um, to the level you would need to be professional in Mexico. And not only that, but I was positioned in this town that was, um, it wasn't even Spanish speaking. It spoke a native language to Mexico. And so that was a barrier that was like pretty problematic for me being able to actually do anything. And then also the uh, organization, the World Wildlife Fund, They were actually, I was more a fellow for a partner organization of theirs based in Mexico. And that partner organization didn't have really a lot of resources. So I got there and they were kind of like, okay, do what you can, you know, and I, I don't blame them. I think it makes total sense. Like I, I, at Dandelion, we hardly have enough resources for interns though. That's getting better. And we have venture funding. So if you're a nonprofit based in Mexico, like I, I completely get that, but it just let led to a situation where I didn't feel very useful for a lot of reasons. And when I, um, really stepped back, I, I thought, you know, what if I, what if I get some work experience at a company with a lot of resources to train me, then maybe I can do something that's a little more useful than I feel right now.
1: It's kind of surprising to hear that you don't speak Spanish because like from my lens, you're just a total superhero. And so I was (laughs) like, Oh, of course she speaks Spanish. And, you know you mentioned the like do what you can mentality for the NGO yeah uh, I also work in big tech um, but I feel like it's a similar mindset uh, and I don't know if in Google was it did you have more direction I, I feel um, that often the people are you know you're put in a place and they say, hey go run with it, go do with it do you like, was your experience in Google different and then what about a dandelion? how do you guys either prevent that or encourage that?
0: Yeah I think when I first got, to Google, it was the opposite because I was in this role that was very much a role for new grads. So it was extremely structured. I had a very narrow um, scope and it was too much in the other direction for me, because to be honest, I am more of a person who thrives in the just go do things environment. I think the issue with Mexico is I really just didn't I wasn't ready. It's like, I didn't have the skills or the experience to know what I couldn't, it was too much for me. Yeah. So my team was just built for new grads. It was a very narrow scope. And at first I really loved it. Like it was, um, fun to even have a job. I would say like it was novel and I really enjoyed my, my peers I ended up marrying one of them. So my husband oh, is cool. uh, one of my coworkers from my first team at Google. So I really enjoyed my friends there. And eventually, I would say within between six months to a year, I was ready to sort of expand and have more autonomy. But um, it's not it. My work situation wasn't willing to adjust as quickly as I wanted to, you know, so that led to some conflict or some, um, tension, I would say between my manager at the time and I, um, and then eventually, you know, over the years, I worked my way to Google X where it was again, more of a, you know, I did have a lot of autonomy there. I would say an exceptional amount, especially for somebody who didn't have much experience which is something I'm really grateful for. I think that that unstructured sort of willing to let people do things that they weren't necessarily qualified for. And I say that in quotes, you know, I think that was a huge gift that I got from being at X.
1: And that X were, and just for clarity, X is like Google's like famous incubator, like secret, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Uh, And so at X, were you also doing, were you focusing on the environment there? And then maybe like, how did you transition from X into launching Dandelion where you, which you founded and where you you currently work?
0: I went into X as their entry-level marketer. So I was at that time in marketing at Google and they needed a junior marketer. It was a joke among my friends because X was a stealth organization at the time that was like very concerned with its secrecy. And so they, they always teased me that I had the easiest job (laughs) in the world because I was doing marketing for this completely secretive organization. And, um, in the marketing capacity at the beginning, I was just across X. So I would, I did things like help, um, help with, you know, launching Google glass or help with launching Google's loon balloon internet project. And, um, it was a really amazing place to be. It was so full of ambition and just a very different way of thinking about possibility than I was used to. Um, it was also a little bit challenging for me personally, because I'm really not a marketer. I'm really not like I struggle in that discipline still to this day. It's not where I gravitate towards. And so I wasn't really in the right job, which, um, which was kind of hard for me. Cause on the one hand I was like, why am I unhappy in this role? It seems like a dream job. Am I ever going to be happy? Because <laughs> I just, I felt a little ungrateful, you know, I had this amazing job and I just didn't like it very much. And that was hard to understand for myself. But eventually I got this opportunity to basically like as an unofficial 20% project type of thing, just on the side, um, Explore the opportunity to make carbon neutral fuels out of seawater. And that ended up turning into an X investigation that I led. And I moved into a product manager role, which was such a better fit for me. And that project ended up not uh, commercializing because the economics, we couldn't make them work. But it did get me into the right role at X, I think, for myself and my skill set. And then after that I started really getting obsessed with heat pumps, which eventually turned into dandelion the spin-up.
1: This is not the route that I expected to go, but I, I'm wondering if we can do a little maybe sure. public mentorship for a second. I would say I'm like maybe ten ish years into my career. And some of the things that I think about is what you just talked about was how much of it is grinding in terms of like it's like the grit. Um, I can't remember the woman's name from Penn who wrote the book, but how much of it is grit and how much of it is the right fit. And then you mentioned like feeling ungrateful, like unhappy at, you know, Google, everyone probably looked at you like, Oh my God, you have free <laughs> snacks, you have free massages. You like yeah. have like bouncy balls in your, in your work. Like, how can you not be happy?
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I certainly did have a lot to be grateful for at the time. And that's, that was the struggle. I was like, does it even get better than this? What, what business do I have to feel that this is not what I want, you know? Um, But I think one of the hardest parts is even trying to define in any way, what one wants. Like, I think um, at least for me, it, there seems to sometimes be this assumption that everyone knows what their dream job is and the problem is getting to it. And I actually don't think that's true. I think a lot of the time, the harder problem is figuring out what makes one happy in a job. Um, or, you know, it's often not what you, assume because we have no data. When we start asking ourselves the question, it's like when you're graduating from college, very few people have actually experienced what any of the possible jobs are even like at all. So we're all just guessing based on very limited information. And then often the real lived experience is very different than what we imagined it would be. And so there's, there's that problem of just like, what is it that you even want to do? And then once you understand that, I actually think it's much easier to then figure out how to do that thing. So I guess from a mentorship standpoint, I think that um, a good way of trying to figure out what you want to do is kind of use the greedy algorithm of figuring like in computer science, it's just algorithms that just take the maximum possible step towards the goal at any given time. So like, let's say you have no idea what you want to do, but you know, you really like a certain person you work with or leader in your organization. Well, like try to just go work for them. Cause you know, that will be strictly better than what you where you are currently. It's like when I um when I was in the early years of my career, I literally was always applying for so many things at the same time. I applied to work at The Economist. I applied to do this masters program at Stanford. I applied to go work at X. I applied for just like really I can't even remember, it was such a long list. And of course, I got rejected from almost everything but that's why it's such a numbers game and why I had so many applications outstanding. Cause like eventually one of them would say yes. And then I would be able to test out another hypothesis for like, this is something I thought I wanted to do. How do I like it? And, you know, probably it would just lead to figuring out the next thing down the line.
1: In your current role at Dandelion, which you founded, right? And now, if I understand correctly, you're the president. How yes. much of what, how much of um, your role today is like doing stuff what you that what you love?
0: It is pretty much all doing stuff that I love because one of the benefits of founding the company is that I had a lot more control than usual eventually, not at first, but eventually over ma- shaping the job to be what I wanted. And I actually made a kind of unconventional decision along the way to get here to this job that I love now, which was, you know, when I co-founded Dandelion, I was the CEO of the company. And I actually was CEO of Dandelion from the beginning till 2020. And then I made the decision to hire a CEO because I didn't really like the job. I didn't, I didn't love being the CEO. It's like, again, it was a lot of focus on things like, marketing and sales and operations. Whereas I really love product and, um, technology and sort of more of the vision piece. Um, and you know, to be fair, a lot of CEOs, especially in tech do focus on those things, but I think dandelion is just such an operational business that it made more sense to me anyway, that the CEO would concern themselves primarily with running the operations and the execution of the business really well. And it was just like not something that brought me a lot of joy, to be honest. So my investors and my mentors were a, a little like very surprised, I would say, when I when I said I want to hire a CEO and move out of the role because I think um it's unusual. And a lot of people are sort of trained to want the CEO role, but I guess I just had enough experience at that point in my career, following the work that I really loved and wanted to do that. It was a hard decision for me, but I'm so glad I did it in retrospect because my life and my work today I'm just so much happier than I was in the CEO role, you know, And I think um, the company will be more successful for it because I think people do better when they're do it when the work doesn't feel so arduous, it just feels like inspirational to them.
1: Dandelion is a home geothermal energy company, right? Yeah. I've gotten to read a little bit about it, but if you were to explain it to a fifth grader, how would you explain what Dandelion does?
0: So for most houses in the United States today, the way they heat is they take a fossil fuel, so oil, propane, or natural gas, and burn it in a furnace. And when that fuel is burned, it generates heat. Pretty simple. Obviously, one of the consequences of this is you're burning a fossil fuel in all of these, you know, buildings all all across the world. What you can do instead with geothermal is use a heat pump, which is a machine that moves heat from one place to another to move heat from the ground into your house to warm it in the winter or move heat from your house into the ground to cool it in the summer. And this is actually the most efficient way to heat our cool buildings. But the problem has been it's been really expensive to install geothermal heat pumps in the past and very uh, complicated to install them. And so what Dandelion exists to do is to really make it super simple and much less expensive to install these systems. Because we think that if it's actually less expensive and simpler to install geothermal heat pumps than it is to install furnaces and boilers, everyone will do it. Because like, why would you want a furnace or a boiler when you can have a geothermal heat pump?
1: And so, today, are there places where geothermal is already cheaper, or or maybe, maybe we'll talk about payback period. So less on the fifth grade level, more on the adult level. Today, where Dandelion exists, is it? What's the payback period? And should like should most people be doing this?
0: It is less expensive to have geothermal than fuel oil or propane in the states that Dandelion operates in today. So for most houses with fuel oil and propane in New York, Connecticut, soon Massachusetts. So like the Northeast, um, yeah, it's less expensive and, The reason this is true is just fuel oil and propane is really expensive. (laughs) Not only is it expensive, it's annoying to use. So we have two ways of paying for a dandelion system. It's kind of similar to rooftop solar, which is really where we got our inspiration when it comes, comes to this. But half of homeowners finance the system. So they take out a loan to pay and that allows them to pay no money up front at all. And then the monthly payment to pay back that loan and to pay for the electricity to run the system is actually less than what they were paying per month for fuel oil or propane. So no cash outlay and the ongoing cost is less immediately. So that's a really attractive option for a lot of people. But then half of our customers prefer just to own it, don't want to take out a loan and so for them, the cost of our system is it lands somewhere between twenty dollars and $25,000. And, you know, that is obviously not a small amount. However, the savings per year are usually between two dollars and $3,000 a year. And then that homeowner might've had to replace their furnace with another furnace at some point in the next 20 years anyway which is the lifetime of our system and replacing a furnace is probably like on the order of ten thousand dollars so when you do the cost benefit the payback period is it usually winds up in the five to ten year range
1: if somebody wants to take the loan route do they go to their bank and say like, "Hey, I'm looking for a loan," or is that where Dandelion steps up and provides the financing?
0: We have a partnership with several banks that you know we've just streamlined the process so that um, we can sort of handle a lot of the the paperwork and figuring out which loan and making sure the customer is getting the best deal and all of those things. But certainly, if a customer wanted to go to their own bank to get a loan, they could. It's just a lot of the friction of getting geothermal has been exactly that type of thing where homeowners would have to go find a loan, go do their permits, go find a driller. And we just want to really make it less of a burden on homeowners so that they have to do much less in order to get the system.
1: Is there anyone else that does what Dandelion does?
0: I don't think there are today. I don't believe there are any um, any other companies of our scale focusing on residential retrofit, which means putting geothermal heat, replacing furnaces and boilers with geothermal systems in homes that already exist. So no, I would say like the closest companies to us today are the solar roof, the rooftop solar companies, but today they're not doing geothermal. So today we're kind of alone, but I don't think that will last for long.
1: And since you brought up solar, I know Google has Project Sunroof, which mm-hmm. um, are you familiar with? And yeah. just for people. So Project Sunroof you can like put in your address and it says like this is whether or not you should or shouldn't do solar. Um, and so it's kind of a two-part question: Is there an equivalent for geothermal? Or is there like a good place? I know like Boise, Idaho, is famous for having kind of like industrial-level geothermal. But is there a good place, bad place for geothermal? Or like every house in the U.S. should use it? And then if I'm considering making one change to my household, I'm thinking solar or geothermal. Is there a clear-cut way to answer which one I should go with in terms of I want to maximize the protection of the environment?
0: Hmm. Okay, so for the second question, which I think will lead us into the first question, I guess um, the way to answer the question, if you wanted to decide between solar and geo based on the optimization of what's best for the environment, what you should do is look at how much energy does your house use for heating and how much energy does it use for electricity, other like not heating or cooling, but just appliances and maybe a few of an electric car. Or whatever it is that you use electricity for, for most homes in the U.S., they use a lot more energy for heating and cooling than for other energy. Because, I mean, I mean, in in New York, it's over eighty percent is used for heating, cooling, and hot water. But that won't be the case everywhere. Like I could imagine. If you have an electric car in Mountain View, California, where it's very mild, um, maybe you use a lot more for other options. So that would be the way to answer that question. I will say, though, that solar and geo are very complementary because a geothermal system runs on electricity. So um, many of our homeowners get geo installed and then use their rooftop solar to run their geothermal system and then their home is using renewable energy through and through. So that's an, a popular option. But to your question before around, you know, s- some places are better for solar than others. What does that map look like for geo? I think um, it's not as much about geology. So the type of geo we're talking about is just basically actually stored sunlight. It's like the sun warms up the, sh- the top layer of the earth. And sort of it maintains a constant temperature year round, which is why caves or wine cellars just, you know, have a constant temperature. So you don't need to be in Idaho. You don't need to be in a volcanically active region. You just need to be on the ground, which many houses are. So that's easy. But what makes the economics better in some places versus others is it's really um, most economically viable in places where, the cost of heating and cooling is otherwise high. So again, one region, one reason we've started out in the Northeast region is because millions and millions of homes are using fuel oil, which is a very expensive heating fuel. And if you're replacing an expensive heating fuel with geo, of course, um, that savings will be higher because you're not going to have to pay for that expensive heating fuel. The other thing that makes geo more viable today in some places versus others is weather. So if you need a lot of heating or cooling, you're more likely to benefit from GEO than if you're in a very mild climate. And today, some there's a lot of difference between states and utilities with how much incentives they offer for GEO. So a lot of the Northeast states and starting it's starting to spread actually throughout the country, but we're starting to see a lot more States put incentives in place to encourage geo adoption. And of course that's great. Cause then homeowners get, you know, around $10,000 back on their system.
1: And, um, we kind of have like the green premium, right? And so you know, one of the questions I have, uh, is what, what is dandelion solving? And you talked about a little bit kind of like the fully integrated going from like, I want geothermal to getting it, but what, what are, what is dandelion solving, um, whether it's financing policy technology, and then what do you need other people to solve in order for dandelion and and kind of like the world to succeed?
0: Mm -hmm. I think what we, what we're doing is productizing and creating a great customer experience from what has formerly just been a technology so geothermal heat pump technology has existed before, you know, it's been around for decades. It's not new. We did not invent it in any way, but just because the technology exists doesn't mean people adopt it. And in fact, they have not, you know, geothermal is such a niche technology, even though it's such a great technology. So we're solving the financing, as you said, the supply chain issues, just like the customer experience issues, um, making the whole thing just less expensive so that it's actually a great investment for homeowners. And that's that's been one of the um, challenging things about this company for me as a founder is that there wasn't one lever that we could just focus on and the whole thing would be solved. It's been... Many different uh, many different levers that we've had to push on in order to change the state of affairs with geo. But the good news is it's it seems to be working. You know, it's like we've seen lots of banks that were formerly not interested in geo when I started the company are now interested in working with us, which translates to lower financing costs and therefore like less expensive system to homeowners. We've seen many, no utilities really that, I mean, a few, I'm sure, but very few utilities had incentives for geo and this company was founded only four years ago. Now, every, every major utility in New York state and many in Connecticut, Massachusetts and elsewhere have, have incentives. So you can see the policy landscape is dramatically shifting in geo's favor. And, um, yeah, we've just like, we've vertically integrated. So for our customers, they can, it's just a much smoother experience than it's ever been before. And so I I see how much progress we've made in four years. And that makes me really optimistic that even though this problem is so multifaceted, it is yielding to effort, which is great in terms of what the world could do to help. I think, I mean, There's a lot, right? There's a lot we all have to do. I would say right now there are some barriers to geo that seem unnecessary to me. Like there's actually a lot of subsidies in place for natural gas, for example, that are propping that fuel up, um, which of course disincentivizes people to switch away from it. And I think that really needs to change because why subsidize something that we don't actually want as a society? But it's obviously very politically sensitive. There's a lot of work to do just in streamlining the permitting and sort of regulatory situation in each town, because there's a lot of overhead just associated with navigating every single town's unique uh, permitting requirements for this technology that they're not, most people aren't that familiar with. So there, that type of thing, I think, will go. And the solar industry has shown us that it's possible to do that. So I think we just have to continue learning from that industry that's a little bit further ahead from us and, and continue smoothing out the experience.
1: If we rewind back the clock, would uh, a founder of a solar company 10 years ago have said the same thing you just said verbatim about kind of getting solar on rooftops?
0: I bet they would. I bet they would. Yeah. And for them, they had to deal with the utilities being a foe, you know, like battling with them about net metering. We don't have that problem, which I'm so thankful for the utilities actually benefit from geo. So they want us to succeed. So in some ways we have an easier path in that in that particular sense. Um, but I do think there's a lot that we share in common.
1: How do the utilities benefit from a homeowner installing geothermal?
0: So let's say you're a homeowner that uses fuel oil, which you probably buy from a small company that is not a utility. When you switch to geo, you're actually, instead of using fuel oil to your house, you're buying electricity to run your geothermal system. So you're adding revenue to the utility, but you're not just adding revenue to them. You're also using a lot of your energy at night and in the winter and your summer peak that you used to create from your air conditioner has been greatly diminished because geothermal is so much more efficient than an air conditioner. So you're adding electricity at all the right times. And that's why they really love Geo
1: In a similar vein, um, you know, Google announced an investment in Fervo, which is producing a, a, a more industrial level geothermal to power their data centers one do you feel um i guess i'm curious to hear your thoughts right kind of it's like your your parent company your your post your previous parent company is now investing are you is is there a future where dandelion goes beyond the home kind of like the decentralized version of geothermal into a more whether it's utility or data center focused
0: so Fermo, yeah is doing the type of geothermal where you dig very deep and find um Sort of tectonic or volcanically active sort of pockets of hot, hot, very hot earth deep below the surface, and I think they're—I don't know too much about Fervo, but from what I understand, they're using—they're really just trying to use modern technology, so like data analytics, a lot of computation and then the latest technology from drilling to to do a really good job of finding the best resource and harvesting it. So, I think it's great that Google's investing. I support Google investing in all all promising renewable energy companies. I think though that it's so different than, you know, we're both called geothermal, but it could have it could just as easily have two different names because what we're doing is drilling much shallower to just use the fact that the the very top layer of the earth maintains a constant temperature year round so the types of challenges and the types of opportunities from doing that are very different than something like a furbo would experience and i do think that dandelion's type of geothermal it lends itself to being distributed. It's distributed in nature. It's possible that you could have, um, a central geothermal and heat heating and cooling sort of, um, wells that are shared among a town or a district and that's done. So I don't want to say that's not a thing because it definitely is. I just think it's much less, like for Fervo, they really couldn't do it distributed because it's all about find the best resource and then extract as much as possible. So I think the nature is just very different.
1: What does the, the future hold for Dandelion? What what does success look like? Um, are you going to be the like largest provider of energy in the entire world in the next few <laughs> years, I hope?
0: Um, I think success will be when everyone wants a heat pump for heating and cooling their building. So in the same way that Tesla has really convinced the entire car industry that the future is in electric, that's what I would like to do with HVAC. I would like to help just influence and create a world where every major HVAC company, every major and minor building owner, um, realizes that the future is going to be in heat pumps and so let's just shift over because we might as well it's inevitable. And of course I would love for Dandelion to continue to play a leading role in that transition but the but the mission is really to decarbonize heating. However we can do it.
1: Have you read The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann?
0: I have not but I have read a summary of it
1: <laughs> okay well that's just so then you have already know what i'm talking about um i want to know if you're a wizard or a prophet and for people who haven't read the book which everyone should go to it's uh it's up there with sapiens and and jobs by walter Isaacson in terms of like the books that i cherish the most you know the prophet is the person who says we need to change the way the human race acts right that we are fundamentally flawed as a species in terms of like our impact on the world versus the wizard is the is the is the engineer is the innovator like we can innovate our way out of climate change and I'm giving a very superficial summary um I'm curious do you consider yourself more wizard more profit
0: I I think dandelion really has wizard written all over it and
1: yeah, so I totally.
0: identify with the wizard because I think yeah so when I was in college for one year I was um sort of accidentally assigned to live in a co-op which was um we had a few of these co-ops where, I don't know, it was like a lot of, um, shared responsibility around the house tended to, to attract, I would say people that might be categorized as hippies, though. I don't know <laughs> if they, that's how they would self-categorize, but just the stereotype, that's what it was. Anyway, there was like in that environment, people would not shower for like weeks at a time to save water or you know just really um
1: if it's yellow let it mellow kind of thing
0: yeah exactly that's right that's exactly the spirit and it was it was very much aligned to my values of conservation and being an environmentalist but very clearly not a way that the mainstream society would ever live. And probably for good reason, having lived in that house for a year. And I think the thing I love about heat pumps is the home is heated and cooled like better. A lot of people say than with a furnace in a, you know, in a conventional air conditioner and it's less expensive and it's sort of a more premium offering. Right. And And the fact that it's all of those things and it's emissions free is what makes it a great product. And I think similarly, what Elon Musk showed with the Tesla vehicle is in the, you know, before Tesla, I think sometimes EVs were people compromised and got one because they didn't want to emit carbon, but they had to deal with really short ranges and cars that just like, weren't as performant as the, as the gas cars. And that's no longer the case. Like a lot of, I think when we see the progress Tesla has made a lot of people who don't really care that much about emissions still opt for that car. Cause it's just so great in so many other ways. So that's the world that I would like to live in where we have great products that, and you know, it's, we're comfortable, And we can do that without destroying the environment.
1: Since founding a climate focused company, have you made any changes or are you more self-conscious of, of any kind of more taboo uh, climate topics? You know, as an example, like eating meat, I don't like, do you eat meat? Uh, What are your thoughts?
0: I do occasionally eat meat. Yes. I think for me, the biggest influence in my life, perhaps ironically towards, um, living a very resource responsible life as my husband who is not actually his job is not in climate but his lifestyle is uh <laughs> is kind of what the prophet and the wizard and the prophet would have hoped um and I don't think he's doing it necessarily exactly for those reasons but he buys so few things He's basically a vegan, though. He doesn't call himself that he's just very, um, he doesn't have a large footprint. So I think being married to him does influence me and, and it may, you know, whenever you're married to someone, I think it pulls you a little bit closer to that person's habits. And so I'm, I'm thankful that he's pulling me in that direction, but I do think I will tell you, like, I think morally, it is better to be a vegetarian. Like I can say that very confidently. The fact that I am not one is because I, like many humans have trouble living a life perfectly in accordance with my values. But I do think I, I I have a lot of respect for those people that have, that have made that choice.
1: Yeah. And full disclosure, I think, you know, part of this journey for me is just like learning to live in the vague, which is that like, we're not always wizards and we're not always profits. Um, and that's, uh, so that's interesting. Are there any other like kind of climate taboos that you think about as kind of now like a front facing of a climate tech company? Or do you consider actually, let me start here. Is Dandelion a climate tech company? I,
0: I do think it is. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have a lot of occasion to to make like big decisions like about, um, (laughs) about climate related things. But I do think that I don't think being the, the face of dandelion has changed how I feel about it. I think I've always felt, I've always felt that I would like my life as much as possible. I would like it. My goal is for it to be a net positive for the environment instead of what it would otherwise be. I think naturally would be a net detractor since we all use resources and emit carbon all the time. And I know for me, I have, it's a big goal. Cause like I fly on airplanes a lot and I use more resources than 99% of people in the world. Cause you know, I'm, I've been lucky to be a citizen of the United States and have, um, the opportunity to fly a lot, you know, and and do all those things. So I, I know that I'm I'm like starting from behind and hopeful that with my work at Dandelion and, and other work too, that I'll be able to somehow claw my way forward and hopefully, um, hopefully end with a net benefit impact, but we'll see.
1: I think it's fair to say that through your your work, how, how many homes are already using dandelion uh, heat pumps?
0: We probably have just south of a thousand heat pumps installed at this point.
1: And so, uh, you have the information on your website for people who are interested in going to see. But and how many uh, how many tons of CO two e of carbon have, has dandelion removed from the world?
0: Over a hundred and fifty thousand at this point
1: so fair enough to say that that's quite a number of airplane rides and uh and and cheeseburgers
0: <laughs> we're getting there thank you
1: thank you so much for your time um you know two final questions one if um is dandelion this is actually three because is dandelion hiring and what do you say to people who are interested in working at dandelion and then um if anyone wants to get in touch what's the best way
0: dandelion is hiring a lot and um if anyone's interested, you can see the open roles on our website. And yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch, hello at dandelionenergy.com, or you can get in touch with me directly at Kathy at dandelionenergy.com.
1: Thank you so much. I had a great time.
0: Me too. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks again to Kathy for joining us today. You can find Dandelion Energy on Twitter and Instagram at Dandelion Energy, and you can also email them at hello at dandelion.com or kathy at dandelion.com. After my interview with Kathy, I'm left wondering about the future of geothermal energy. What Dandelion is doing is super impactful, and it's just one aspect of geothermal's potential to create fossil-free energy. There are so many technological applications for geothermal. Heating and cooling your home is just one of them. There's enhanced geothermal, super hot rock geothermal, advanced geothermal. Maybe we'll talk about those in a future episode. Right now, wind and solar are all the rage in the renewable energy space. But I won't be surprised if geothermal is up there with them in the next five years. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. You can join the conversation about net zero living on my weekly clubhouse office hours by following at the net zero life. Clubhouse office hours are Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at thenetzerolife or by emailing nathan at thenetzerolife.com. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. This episode was produced by Tony Lovett. The original music was composed by Climb On. Thanks again for listening. And lastly, if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Nathan Zvi, and this is the Net Zero Life.